And this is some of the technical language. And again, I'll use the illustration of my children is that my children have my DNA uh, and my wife's DNA for that matter. So they, you know, there's genetic similarities. And I, we would look at the uh, ultrasounds and I could tell my wife every time, there's my nose. I see my nose, you know, so all three of my kids have my nose. Don't get me wrong. My wife's got a beautiful nose, but, you know, my son, my children have my nose. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they are the, of the same essence as me. They have a different, they, they're their own genetic uh, a set of cells and, and what have you. They're independent of me in that sense. They have some of my DNA, but they share in that. Whereas the Council of Nicaea, going off of what we see in texts such as John 1, 1 and following, say that the Son was not of like essence with the Father, so that there's similarity there, but he's of the, the same essence. He's of the same essence. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. In the next several episodes, I am inviting some of today's top theologians onto the Credo Podcast to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. I have just published a new book called Simply Trinity, the Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this book, I point out that we are experiencing Trinity drift. We have drifted away from the biblical and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And my book is meant to help you, help us, recover and retrieve a doctrine of the Trinity that is far more faithful. I invite you to join me in these next episodes as I sit down with these top theologians, and we reflect on the doctrine of the Trinity, not just what we believe, but how it also should affect our worship, our prayer, and so much more. We are here today uh, with uh, Matthew Barrett, who's the author of a forthcoming book, uh, Simply Trinity, uh, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, this is a book about the doctrine of the Trinity, but what's uh, really, I think, commendable about the book, and for those of you who are interested in it, you go to an Amazon page and you can take a look at all of the endorsements that are there commending it, is that uh, it's a book that uh, really conveys the idea of the unmanipulated Trinity. In other words, in recent years, whether from the 19th century on, there have been a lot of theologians who have tried to uh, supposedly go beyond uh, the, the historic and classic doctrine of the Trinity. And I think one of the things that I really like about uh, Matthew's book here is that he um, he communicates in an accessible manner. But if you take a look at the end notes, uh, he's in continual dialogue with the ancient church and a lot of the theologians that were involved in creating what we call uh, historic Trinitarian uh, creedal orthodoxy. Uh, the idea that we find, the ideas that we find in the Nicene Creed and the uh, Chalcedonian definition. And so uh, that's uh, one of the great features of the book, but it's not just a feature of the book, per se, but it's ultimately what we would say it's the Catholic faith. In other words, Catholic with a small c mm -hmm. to denote the universal faith that has been professed uh, by Christians uh, from the earliest days of the church. And so we don't adhere to it because it's old or because it's traditional, but ultimately because it is biblically uh, true, faithful to the teaching of the scriptures, but also in this sense, universally professed. And uh, I always like to tell my students, it's, it's professed by Roman Catholics, by Eastern Orthodox uh, folks, by uh, Protestants, by Lutherans, by Reformed, by Baptists. Uh, it is uh, universal in this sense. So uh, we're here to discuss that. And uh, so... Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to unpack here one of the chapters that we're talking and whet your appetite for that, uh, for, for everything that Matthew has to say in his book. I'm glad that you, you sneaked in us Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Wouldn't have it any other way. 
we we don't always have uh, a long reputation for um, Catholic with a small C, but we're we're improving. We're improving. Yeah. <laughs> In a sense, as we all are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John, it's, it's, it's great to, to have this this uh, discussion with you. Um, you know, you're you're someone that uh, I've, I've benefited from for so many years and mm-hmm. uh, and have really enjoyed uh, getting to know, but also uh, working together um, with different projects. And uh, so you're um, I, I do. I know we're talking about, you know, simply Trinity, but I really do hope that. Um, those who, who kind of watch this uh, dialogue will um, go and look at uh, some of the work you've done. Um, you've done some great work as um, your book on um, the Trinity and the covenant of redemption comes mm-hmm. to mind uh, among, among many other things. So yeah, well, thanks for those kind words. Um, this, uh, you know, we're talking about eternal generation, of course, but um you know, when I think about uh, what you just said about where we've been, um, we eternal generation is not only a doctrine that's fallen on hard times, but uh, I'm not I'm not sure uh, a lot of Christians even know what it means. Uh, would you? Is that a? Am I far off there? No, no. I I think you're right. It's uh, it's definitely a. A lost category. Uh, you know, just a quick anecdote on that. I remember we had a um, a candidate come before our meeting, our presbytery, who was seeking licensure, and uh, among many other things, one of the things he wanted to reject was the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. And so, my wife happened to show up to the meeting because she was going to be bringing some food and, and some other things and meeting with some of the other wives. And so, she sat down in the back of the room, and then after the meeting broke for a meal, uh, she walked up. And she said, oh, you were debating the eternal generation of the sun, weren't you? And I was like, wow, uh, you know, that's that's pretty impressive. How do you know that? She said, "Uh, because uh, one of the members of Presbyter had on his computer, he Googled, what is the eternal generation of the sun? (laughs) (laughs) So I just thought, oh, no. (laughs) Uh, So, yes, unfortunately, it's it's something that a lot of folks don't know uh, a lot about. And so that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm glad we're talking about it now. Well, uh, this is going to sound a bit uh, weird, but uh, that story, that anecdote actually makes me feel a little bit better because uh, I'd be lying. You know, I've, I've been a pastor over the years, and uh, one of my, my first, uh, first ent- you know, kind of entryways into the ministry was, was in a pastorate, and I enjoyed it so, mu- so much. But I, I, you know, that, that story right there, I resonate with, um, and, you know, trying to bring up Trinitarian doctrines and other, you just kind of get that blank look. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, very true. Very true. We, uh, maybe we should just start off by, uh, by defining it. Maybe that would help, um, you know what? I'd love to hear how how you uh, articulate this uh, when you're talking to to you know churchgoers or pastors mm-hmm. or even students. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways that I've tried to articulate it is to say, well, we're talking here not about um, you know something that um, happens in the incarnation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, we're we're actually talking about the imminent life of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe may, I'll let you you start. You know, John. Maybe we should just back up a second, right? Because we're talking about these names, Father mm-hmm. and Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what does it mean? First of all, um, how, how has Scripture and the great tradition uh, understood uh, God as Father, specifically? Mm-hmm that word unbegotten, uh, what, what exactly uh, does that mean? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways that we could, you know, answer this. And, you know, it's like if you want to talk about it, say, first and foremost from the biblical text uh, and then working our way forward, is in the biblical text, say, for example, in the New Testament, the, the, the New Testament refers to the Father as the Father. Now, now, that may seem like a, you know, kind of a self-evident kind of thing, but when you begin to 
uh, delve into that, you want to ask the question, well, why is he not referred to by some other title or some other name? Why is, why is the father not also called the spirit or why is he also not called the son? You know, so that, that's, that's one of the first important things we want to note. And, and along those lines, you know, it's like I tell my students this, and I think I was just telling them this this week, is that typically when you see reference to God, uh, in the biblical text, it's typically going to be a reference to the Father. Not in every case, but in, in most cases. So that, you know, when you see God re- referenced, it's, it's, it's to the Father. Okay, so that's, that's the first kind of layer that we have in there. And then the second layer is, is we want to ask the question is, okay, well, uh, when you read in John 1, 1 and following that the Word was God and the Word was with God, that means that there's a, a second person there. Uh, who is not the father, and the, 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 the name that the scriptures have given this second person is the son. Okay, mm-hmm. so now there's this relationship that we have, you know, between the father who is God and the son who is God. And so, uh, you know, a, a third layer that we could put in there is, you know, if I can leap out to uh, Harry S. Truman, <laughs> which seems like a total non sequitur, but <laughs> to Harry S. Truman and the idea where he had that little plaque on his desk, the buck stops here. Yeah. Um, you know, so that if we're thinking in human terms, we're always thinking that, okay, I'm a father, uh, but uh, I began life as a son and I took on the role as a father when I fathered my own children. Uh, and so you can back that up and you can continually back that up, you know, ad infinitum up until Adam, uh, so that every single father is himself a son. But yet, as you know, in this chapter, that when we're talking about, you know, the Godhead, all of a sudden we're using human language to speak of God in a metaphorical or an analogical manner. So that we're going to say that while the scriptures say that the, the, the father is the father and the second person of the Trinity is the son, that we're using these, these terms, first of all, because they're revealed. It's what scripture tells us who these persons in the Godhead are. But secondly, we're using these terms in an analogical fashion to say that the son is a son and we are sons, but he has a sonship that is unlike our sonship or the father is a father unlike uh the the way that we you know that we are fathers and so in this sense we say that he is the um the father is the principle without principle the the, the, the again the simple way of saying is that the buck stops with the father there's no one behind the father um you know the, the another way to put that in philosophical terms but notice we've started with scriptural terms is the you know the unmoved mover that every effect has a cause but at some point you have to get to that uncaused cause the the the, the, the simply the the, the the thing that is that has existence and so those are just different ways of describing what the bible means when it talks about the fact that the father is the father there is no father of the father uh, and that's why we say that he is unbegotten, and he is unbegotten uniquely so, because the Spirit does not have that uh, that that property of unbegottenness. The Son does not have that property of unbegottenness, because the Son is the Son, and by definition, sons are are begotten. So at least that kind of sets us up uh, for that that initial starting point of recognizing why we would call the Father unbegotten and in a sense you could say that father and unbegotten are something of synonyms they're, they kind of they're mutually explanatory they explain one another so hopefully that sets us up for you know that that next uh, question which is okay well if the father is unbegotten then in what way is the son uh, begotten yeah i mean how you just put it is so so helpful and so clear uh because when we're talking about uh, the son being begotten from the father. Um, and and we, we'll, we'll get to this later, but we have to very quickly set, remind ourselves, because we, we have a terrible habit of doing this, right? Of just thinking, oh, that's, that means the same thing mm-hmm. as when a human son is begotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we have to remind ourselves, no, actually, we're talking about the son of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, who doesn't have the same limitations and constrictions as as uh, humanity? So that 
you use the word analogical. Mm-hmm. That word analogical is so important. Mm-hmm. But to answer you know that type of question, um, when we refer to sometimes it's called eternal generation, or here we're using mm-hmm. the John's language of begetting. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, we're referring to the fact that the the very reason the reason that the son is called son Mm -hmm. is because he is from his father, Mm -hmm. but he's from his father from all eternity. Uh, Mm -hmm. There never was a time when the father was not father. There never was a time when the son was not son. Uh, I suppose we could, we could put this, you know, uh, a bit more theologically to say that uh, from all eternity, the father uh, communicates the one simple undivided essence mm-hmm. uh to to his son mm-hmm. and uh this uh this type of definition uh then is quite instrumental to not un- only understanding why the father is called father but why the son is called son yeah. and like you said it's going to to actually then uh help us uh you know, raise that next question eventually when we get to the spirit to say, well, he's not a second son. <laughs> he, he's not a, a twin brother, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, yeah. That's how we, you know, think of things in terms of our human experience. Uh, you know, he, he proceeds, he's spirated, uh, which is, is something to be distinguished then uh, from, from sonship. Uh, you know, one of the reasons it's so important uh this, this doctrine of eternal generation, one of the reasons it's so important is because uh, on the one hand, it, dis, it, it distinguishes, it is the, and the only thing that distinguishes the son. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not distinguished by, say, some type of subordination mm-hmm. or some type of functional societal role. Right. No, what scripture identifies is in the imminent life of God, actually, it is eternal generation itself. And so this distinguishes the son as son from the father. But at the same time, uh, it also protects and safeguards the, the unity of the simplicity of father and son, because we're, we're basically saying that the son is begotten from the father's essence. And so uh, this, was, this was so crucial then. Uh, in those early controversies, uh, because when, say, an Arius came along and could not affirm an eternal generation, uh, well, there's a good reason then why the Nicene Creed said, actually, we're going to affirm eternal generation, not only because it distinguishes the Son, but because it ensures his his total equality uh, right. with with the Father himself. Um, I guess that, that then, you know, we're we're two theologians here, so we can't help but, you know, follow this kind of train of thought. I mean, when we talk about eternal generation, it raises the question of how, like, and that's where there, certainly we want to say at the beginning, like there's, there is mystery here that we have to be very careful about. Uh, We're talking about the infinite incomprehensible Trinity. At the same time though, um, we might ask the question, okay, well, how is, how is the sun generated? Uh, not just what is eternal generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, given what you said earlier about analogical language, I mean, how how would you um, how would you differentiate then uh, between you know a divine generation and a human generation? Yeah, I think that this is this is one of the distinctions you see, you know, theologians employing because there's a sense in which we want to note the continuities between a a human uh, generation versus versus a divine generation, but on the other hand, you also must note those those significant discontinuities to acknowledge that that uh, analogical nature of the, of the language of, that we're using to speak about God, and so um, you know we could say that. Um, a, you know, and I, I'll just think through these, and I'm not going to give them necessarily in, in as logical order as I would like, uh, but just as they come to me, you know, so like one of the first distinctions we would say is that, um, you know, when I, uh, you know, 
generated, if we can put it in that terms, my, my children, my sons, my daughter, um, that it was an act of my will. You know, I, I decided with my wife, hey, you know, we would like to have children. And so we said, okay, it was a, a decision that we made. Uh, but yet we want to say that uh, the the eternal generation of the son is not, uh, you know, the uh, decision of the father's will as if he decided, you know, I'm kind of lonely. Uh, I'd like to have a son. And so here he is. Rather, it is uh, something that theologians will say that it is uh, natural. It is necessary to God's being and existence so that it's not something that he decides to have and then, you know, poof, there it, it, it occurs. So that's one of the big differences, one of the massive significant differences. It's a natural generation versus a voluntary generation for human beings. Secondly, uh, we would want to note that, uh, again, using the example with my children, is that it's it's a temporal generation in the sense that there was a point at which my children did not exist. Mm-hmm. And I jokingly say, you know, maybe sometimes to my daughter or something, oh, you know, no, you weren't alive then, you know, when you said, look <laughs> at these pictures, you were just a twinkle in daddy's eye. Yeah. Um, you know, so there was a point at which my daughter, for example, and my children did not exist. Whereas for the son, this is what gets to that little, you know, modifier there, eternal generation that there's a there's a point at which uh, there's no point at which the sun did not exist. It's it's an eternal existence for the sun, just as the father's essence is eternal. So the sun, because he shares in that essence, it's it's eternal. Uh, so there's no time at which the sun does not exist. Unlike the Arians who said no, he's the the highest of all creatures, and that there was a point at which he did not exist, and then later is adopted by the father and becomes the divine son. Uh, you know, a third thing that we could say about the, the, the nature uh, of the uh, gen- son's generation um, is that, and this is some of the technical language, and again, I'll use the illustration of my children, is that my children have my DNA uh, and my wife's DNA for that matter. So they, you know, there's genetic similarities. And I, we, we would look at the uh, ultrasounds and I could tell my wife every time there's my nose i see my nose you know so all three of my kids have my nose don't get me wrong my wife's got a beautiful nose but you know my son, my children have my nose yeah but that doesn't mean that they are the of the same essence as mm-hmm. me they have a different they, they're their own genetic uh, uh set of cells and and what have you they're independent of me in that sense they have some of my dna but they share in that whereas the council of nicaea going off of what we see in texts such as john 1 1 and following say that the son was not of like essence with the father so that there's similarity there but he's of the the same essence he's of the same essence uh and so this is one of the things that i think going back say to that that debate that I had that I participated in in my presbytery a number of years ago, uh, more than actually more than a decade ago, really, it was more like 15 years ago, I think. <laughs> but that people think that well, if the father communicates his essence to the son, well, we know that if you stretch an extension cord too far, uh, <laughs> you get you get signal loss or you get loss of power. So that there's some sort of if if the father is giving of his essence, well, then there must be some sort of signal loss. There's he's not the son's not getting all of it. But I always remind my students this that when we're talking about the father communicating his essence. It's homoousios. It's of the same essence. It, there's no signal loss. Uh, there's no partial sharing of of the of the divine essence. It's the entirety of the uh, of the divine essence in that sense. And so that's again unlike uh, the way it is uh, with. Um, with the with with the the human generation, so uh, you know those are the top three that come to mind. You might come up with some others, but I would want the, the folks that watch this to recognize that when we're we're talking about these things, if there's a sense in which we're defining the edges of the envelope, and you know to, to borrow Saint Augustine's uh, statement, we're not prying into things for which we have no biblical warrant. And there's a sense in which, yes, we're addressing sublime mysteries, but at the same time, we must say the things that we're saying about this eternal generation of the Son, because not only this is what Scripture says, but we have to fend off the false teaching of what heretics have said in denying 
that the Son is of the same essence and denying that the Son is fully God and denying that the Son is eternal. And so, you know, we have to state these truths. Uh, And so it's not that we're being in any way speculative, but we're being biblical in that at the same time noting that there's a lot in there inside the envelope that it's it's a mystery it's it's a it's a glorious mystery and and the illustration that i use with my students a lot is i, I say that you know einstein and other physicists debated at the turn of the 20th century and there's still debate in the scientific community is light a wave or a particle well it exhibits characteristics of both which is technically supposed to be impossible according to the rules of science now they may come to a point when they can explain how this is so but just because they cannot explain it doesn't mean that they can't nevertheless recognize the various characteristics about this phenomenon. And I think that's what we're doing with the doctrine of the Trinity. We can't explain everything of it because it is mysterious and it's sublime and glorious. And it's, you know, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God, how, you know, unsearchable are his ways. Uh, And uh, so, but at the same time, we can describe and define the phenomenon that we see in the biblical text so that we can keep false teaching at bay. Okay, so, so, oh, go ahead, you first. No, no, Uh, I I was just going to say, I I love that some of those illustrations you used right there, um, because it reminds me when we're talking about a mystery like this, um, or how you described it, you know, defining the edges of the envelope. Mm-hmm. sometimes by saying what it is not mm-hmm. uh, actually helps us clarify what it is or mm-hmm. what it <laughs> at least at the very least, right? Says this is, this is the edge. <laughs> don't, don't pass this edge. Otherwise there's, there's danger ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Now I mentioned a couple of things, uh, you know, here, three things, yeah. but in your chapter in the book, you talk about nine marks of, unhealthy generation now maybe you maybe you got that from mark dever's ministry nine marks and you said i'm going to take it in the opposite way not nine marks of a healthy church but nine marks of an unhealthy doctrine of of the, yeah. of the sun uh, or of christology so what are some of the other things that you would include in terms of you know in, in, as far as defining say what generation is not yeah 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 you know uh when i <laughs> uh when i uh wrote that um, I actually just started listing them out and, uh, you know, this isn't original to me. Uh, I'm, I'm standing on, you know, big wide shoulders, uh, John Gill, the, the reformed Baptist figure, uh, of course, you know, uh, the Cappadocians as well. <laughs> and, but then by the end of it, it ended up being nine and I thought, Oh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, you're right. Um, uh, I actually have them here in front of me, and I, I won't. I'm not going to go through all of them, but um, one of the well, the first two are there is no division of nature, mm-hmm. and there's no multiplication of essence, and and perhaps we can talk about some of the others too. But if I were just to start uh, with those two, um, mm-hmm. that those are incredibly important, and you you kind of hinted at them just a minute ago, really, um, when we talk about the Father, for example, as you said, there's no, there's no beginning. He himself doesn't have a Father. He is unbegotten. Um, and when we talk about the Son, then we're saying he, he is the Father of this Son. Uh, we're assuming he is not fathered by anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Well, immediately, right, that should set things in a different direction than when we think about human fathers and sons. Here, mm-hmm. with the Trinity, the, the Son is begotten of the Father, of the Father's, uh, we, well, we could put it this way, he's begotten of the Father by nature. I think you even alluded to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the, the, the Son is uh, what we would call a subsistence, Mm-hmm. of that one simple, undivided, indivisible uh, mm-hmm. nature. He's not a, you use the language of wills, right? That's where right. things get problematic. If we start thinking, oh, he's a production. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a product of, mm-hmm. of the father. He's uh, mm-hmm. 
if we start going that route, then we would have to to conclude, oh, he has a second nature. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be different, separate. He's his own individual or something along along that lines. Um, one of the ways that, you know, when we talk about our, you know, human generation, yes, uh, in human generation, the human nature is is then divisible in some in some sense, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about a divine uh, generation, we're we're not talking here about something physical or material. Mm-hmm. Um, what you know to kind of throw a, a a fancy theological word in the mix here. This is one of the reasons why the fathers would say it's hyperphysical, mm-hmm. um, and, and and by that they're trying to avoid any type of connotation that would say, oh, when the son is begotten. There's something, something is divided, right. uh, something is multiplied, uh, yeah. like, the, like the divine essence, as if you have, you know, two essences. They're saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, there's a, they, they are trying to protect the simplicity mm-hmm. of Father, Son, and Spirit and avoid dividing up the substance or the nature of God uh, in describing eternal generation. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons why whenever they speak of, whenever they look at, say, a gospel like John's, they make much of Jesus's language when he refers to being one with the Father. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they they want to, to then say, well, for him to be a son then, for him to be begotten from his Father, it's not as if he received something in part, but in whole. Uh, this is not... Um, it's not as if begetting then says, oh, okay, here's a, a portion of, of godness <laughs> uh, that, that you are to receive, uh, some type of fragment uh, or, or something peculiar like that. No, this the son, uh, the father communicates the whole indivisible, simple, undivided essence to his son, and he does so uh, without uh, lessening. Uh, without dividing, without partitioning, um, without change, on and on and on and on. So I, I, I could, I could, of course, you know, go on about that. But um, you know, when we say then that there's no division, there's no multiplication that occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, that that probably should lead us in the very next sentence to say, okay, well, then if we're talking here about the eternal infinite, uh, immutable God, then this eternal generation can't involve any priority or any posteriority, let alone any inferiority. Right. Maybe you could speak to that for a minute. Uh, why is that such a danger? Yeah. Again, this is where, you know, maybe I, I, I always like to back up, you know, into these things in the sense of saying that, you know, so, okay, I've got my sons and uh, there's a sense in which, not only am I before my sons in time, uh, but I am also before my sons in authority uh, because they're younger. They lack wisdom, sadly. <laughs> they, they, in fact, we, we created the, a name for this, the, Fes- the Fesco Family Brain Trust. And it's like, <laughs> you know, like when, they're, when they're pulling the wagon behind a bike that has no steering wheel and one of them's wearing a helmet, it's like, that's a brain trust activity yeah, right yeah. there. Uh, I thought I, I thought we were alone. We, <laughs> our, I thought our family was the only one who had that issue. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh goodness. So there's 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 a big drop off. <laughs> yeah, between father and, and sons. Okay, all right. Uh, and so in that sense, we can say that I have priority, um, and they have some sense of inferiority in terms of wisdom, experience, uh, age, etc. But because we're talking about the fact that the son is homo usias of the same substance or essence, uh, because we're saying that he's eternally generated, that there is no point at which uh, the son does not exist, uh, then we want to say that the son is holy God, which therefore means that because we're talking about fathers and sons in an analogical fashion, we don't want to apply temporal human earthly father-son relationship characteristics back upon uh, the, 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 the father-son relationship in eternity or in the Godhead. Rather, what we have to understand is that 
our relationships derive their existence from God's relationships, not that we derive our understanding of God's relationships from ours. So in other words, God reveals who he is. We're not projecting upon, uh, you know, who God is based upon who we are. Uh, you know, so we don't want to get into kind of, you know, Feuerbach in the 19th century of projecting uh, theology uh, or saying that theology is a human projection. Rather, we're dealing with divine revelation. And so in that sense, we say that there is no, uh, you know, posteriority or priority. The one priority, or if you want to talk about it, is that, you know, theologians will talk about an order, a taxis, uh, you know, where they say, we, we always talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, we talk about it in that order, but that order does not imply or does not necessitate um, inferiority okay. uh, or that somehow the Son is eternally obedient uh, to the Father. Uh, to, to do that, I think, is to, is to pull, you know, we can put it in these terms, to pull economy into the ontology of the Trinity or to pull redemption uh, and the actions in history back into the uh, eternal Godhead. And that is uh, problematic uh, on, on a number of levels. Uh, you know, so, um, you know, I don't know, maybe we want to segue to that, you know, because there's you know, yeah. a lot of discussion these days about um, EFS or eternal functional subordination or eras, uh, you know, eternal relations of authority and submission. Uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe you want to... Yeah. Uh, touch us, start, you know, start us off on that or, or mention. Yeah, that. well, you're, you're exactly right. Um, despite the, you know, centuries and centuries, um, millennia of, of uh, two millennia of, of trying to ensure that there's um, no, no sense in which uh, there's any type of subordination uh, within the, uh, within God in and of himself, within the triune life, um, or what we might call the imminent life of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, in the, the last um, several decades, there's been a, a new and novel position that I, I think has actually kind of evolved out of uh, the rise of social Trinitarianism, uh, in which um, some evangelicals have started talking of the persons as in, in terms of roles and relationships as if, the, uh, and, and have said, well, let's define the Trinity as a society um, mm-hmm. of, of uh, a community of relationships. What kind of society is this? They've, they've then said, uh, well, yes, the, the son may be uh, equal in essence, but nonetheless, even in the imminent Trinity, there is hierarchy, uh, a functional subordination or submission of the Son. They've, they've even gone so far at times to, to say um, the Father is of a, has a, a supreme, uh, a supremacy, a supreme authority, and even uh, glory, hmm. even glory. And uh, from from there, they've argued that uh, the the father can he uh, sometimes he might he, he, he even does act uh, unilaterally. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he even can act without the son or the spirit. Now, all of this, of course, raises a whole cluster of issues, right? Um, and uh, for the for the longest time, uh, these theologians also. Uh, either rejected or at the very least were suspicious about the doctrine of eternal generation mm-hmm. and said that, uh, well, um, uh, hi- this functional hierarchy, that, that is what distinguishes uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, the, the persons of the Trinity. That's why the father is father and the son is son. Yeah. Now, uh, recently they've, they've backed away from that denial and said, okay, we're going to affirm eternal generation now. But uh, kind of underneath the surface of that, as you start actually digging a little deeper, they explain one of the reasons why is, well, they now believe that um, uh, this subordination, this functional submission flows out of eternal generation. It's found within eternal generation. And so now they've they've used this Nicene category to double down on uh, – this functional hierarchy within the Godhead. Mm. Now, maybe I can throw this back at you. I mean, you've just 
just, uh, you know, went to some length to, to say, listen, there's, there's, there's no sense of inferiority. Uh, if we introduce, um, a type of, uh, subordination, even if it's, you're saying it's functional, nonetheless, that's a collapse, uh, or even a confusion of the economy of salvation. What may be occurring for the purpose of the mission of -hmm. salvation uh, with the, with God in and of himself with, with now maybe if I can throw this back on you, uh, what, why is it the case that when we say there's no priority, posteriority, inferiority in eternal generation, why then is it so problematic and illegitimate to then try to insert into eternal generation um, some type of uh, functional uh, subordination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's problematic on a number of levels, you know, and I could just rattle them off relatively quickly and then try to get to the meat of the question. It's, it's problematic because, you know, it, it contradicts the ancient creeds of the church. Now, you know, the typical objection is, so those are man-made documents. Okay, yeah, they're man-made documents, but they're working from the biblical text, and you have to demonstrate how they have not been, uh, you know, exegetical, how they've somehow misunderstood the scriptures, and I've not been convinced by the, you know, the proponents of eras or EF, EFS that they that they the church fathers have somehow done this. Not to mention the fact that, like I said, we said at the beginning that this is the, the universal witness of the church. So right. that's a that's a pretty large group. It's like whenever you get a diverse group of folks like that agreeing on the same thing, despite <laughs> all of the things that they disagree on. I tell my students, I want to make you s- s- yeah. sit up, scratch your head and think, I better be really careful here before I decide to, you know, divert from the path. So that's the, the first observation. The second observation is, is that I think that it, you know, this is going to sound, I think, I don't know. I don't know how else to say it, but it's going to sound really bad. <laughs> It means, I think, that the Son is not fully God, because if he is eternally functionally subordinate, it means he had to go. Mm-hmm. He had no other option when the Father sends him, which therefore then devalues the Son's incarnation, because it's not something that he freely chooses to do out of love, but rather it's something he's forced to do because he must go because there's no other alternative. And that, I think, really strikes at the heart of the son's voluntary willingness to come and to save. You know, and and it's like you see this, you know, you could say you see it captured in the garden is that if he is functionally subordinate then there's a sense in which I think that the prayer that he utters in the garden would be somewhat pointless because he has no other choice. He must go. Whereas if he does genuinely have a choice, then I, then that means that I think that his, his prayer, if there's any other way yet, not my will, but thine be done really takes on great significance because mm. he's saying, yes, Father, I'm going and you you have sent me because I'm equal with you. Or to put it in Pauline terms, though he was in the form of God, yeah. though he's equal with God, he did not think consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So in other words, he voluntarily goes down this path, uh, you know, to to counter Adam's actions who tried to grasp equality with God by eating of the tree. And so it, 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 no matter how well intentioned it, um, it, it devalues uh, the incarnation and the son's willingness to come uh, and to save. Mm. And then you could say that there's a third problem, which is, and you, you alluded to this and you've mentioned this is that, and I don't like necessarily using my two hands because it, it, it it, uh, it conveys a big disconnect in between, but yeah. nevertheless, if you back up economy into the being of God, then in some sense, 
you're introducing a form of pantheism into the Godhead to say that these temporal categories are somehow necessary for God's existence. Mm -hmm. The son must save because the father has sent him. And then if he must go, then in some sense, this whole economy of redemption and history must exist because God has to be redeemer in some sense. Now, it's arguable as to how far that has to be or, you know, that those implications may go. But I fear that it, at a minimum, it at least it sets you on that path. And it's a path that has a lot of, of problematic uh, concomitants that we just, I think the church fathers wisely, you know, steered clear of them. And I think that we should follow them uh, as they, you know, steer clear of those, yeah. of those problematic yeah. ideas. Yeah, there's there's wisdom there in in taking a uh, a bit of a page out of their book to to say there's good reason why they made every effort to eliminate any type of subordination within within the imminent life of God. Uh, you know that 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 second all those points were really helpful, John. Um, you know that second point's extremely powerful because if uh, if this functional subordination is person defining, right? This is something apart from creation, apart from salvation. This is, uh, which is what EFSers say. Uh, they, they now say, okay, uh, there's not just one thing, eternal generation, but now two things, mm-hmm. also functional subordination, two things now that def- are person defining for the son. Well, if that's the case, then it, that raises a big, uh, well, it seems to undercut uh, in significant ways the whole point of the incarnation. And, you know, as you just quoted from Paul, there's a contrast there that gets, it just gets sucked out. Um, and the, the contrast is, this is not something, this, this obedience you see in the incarnation as the last Adam Mm-hmm. As our, as the Messiah, as the one who's, you know, in contrast to Israel, who is an unfaithful son, Jesus comes as one who is faithful to the covenant, right? Well, there's a reason that this is so outrageous and so bold and, and so unexpected, because this is not something <laughs> that yeah. that the son does in the, in, in the imminent life of God, apart from creation and salvation, uh, if it was, then this is then it then it would just be a continuation uh, of of eternity, which would actually undermine the very significance mm-hmm. of everything from the life to to the cross to the resurrection. You know, one of the ways that um, you know you mentioned Paul. I mean, we could talk also about like a text like Hebrews five, mm-hmm. uh, in which it says that uh, it says something very similar, right? That uh, uh, although he is this. Uh, eternal son he learned obedience mm-hmm. and, and here it's referring you know by virtue of his human nature and the incarnation he learns obe- the, the whole assumption is that this is not this is something extraordinary this is something that the son doesn't do within the imminent life of god he's doing this by virtue of the incarnation as the second adam uh for the sake as the nicene creed says for us and our salvation yeah. Yeah. In other words, the context is economy. If you if you just pull that back or project it at worst mm-hmm. into the imminent life of God, mm-hmm. well, not only do we make a mess of uh, you know uh, trinitarian categories, mm-hmm. but we also simultaneously just pull the rug out from from the mission, and it's hard to then explain well. Why? Why is this incarnation, and why is grace so amazing? After all, yeah. it's, it's it's not. It, it's it's more of a continuation than it is something extraordinary and unusual that yeah. he does by virtue of his humanity. Yeah, yeah. I think the way that I, I you know try to tell my students about this is to recognize the fact that obedience is is on the economy side of the ledger, but if you want to find its its source, uh, it's the, it's love, you know, the Father and the Son eternally love each other along with the Spirit, but that love in the economy becomes manifest as obedience. Uh, so we can say that the triune God eternally loves each other, 
Uh, but to, 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 as you said, to pull obedience back into the economy really uh, makes uh, it makes a mess of things. It, it really it, it it disrupts a number of things that the church has historically sought to preserve. And so, yeah, just I have a little. Um, I have no appreciation. <laughs> I have no appreciation for uh, for the position, uh, you know, whether it's EFS or ERAs. And uh, I'm I'm hoping that uh, as the discussion on these issues goes forward, and obviously, I think uh, something that gets propelled by your book uh, that uh, people who are are tempted by such ideas uh, will see will see the light and will see how important uh, these things are in Scripture. Absolutely. Um, there's, there's been some good signs lately, and uh, hopefully that will, uh, that will continue with more good. and more quality publications. Um, it, is, it is encouraging. Yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, we've been talking about eternal generation, and we would say, you know, and we've probably kind of touched on this, at least substantively, but let's formally put it out there to say that oh. – is there any change uh, in no. eternal generation? Because I think one of the big things that uh, like students often, you know, struggle with is, well, wait a minute, doesn't, doesn't the eternal son become man? You know, doesn't that involve some kind of change? Uh, you know, how does this work? So how would you describe the eternal generation in relation to the question of change? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an important question. Uh, I, it's interesting too, you know, I don't know what your experience is like. I mean, we're both professors. Uh, I tend to get this question because uh, the minute you put forward uh, a biblical classical understanding of, of God, which includes immutability, mm-hmm. that God is unchanging, uh, impassibility. Uh, the minute you do that, um, you sometimes get questions as to, well, that, how can that be? Because, well, the, the reason we can say something like um, God is immutable and the reason we can even say, hey, in eternal generation, there's no change is because, like we mentioned earlier, we have to keep coming back to this point. This is not uh, the same as our human experience. <laughs> um, so when we talk about um, when we talk about a divine generation, not a human generation. Um, we are referring to the eternal, infinite, and immutable God. Mm-hmm. Um, just as we said, there can be no division or multiplication of substance. Well, in the same breath, we can say there's no change either. Uh, in other words, it's not as if um, when the father begets his son, uh, there is some some type, he, he becomes something he previously was not, or he becomes it all, uh, mm-hmm. as if he didn't exist in the first place. No, uh, we're actually precluding that type of thinking altogether. Um, you know, if we think about it, this goes hand in hand, right, with the notion of God's timelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in time. We experience a succession of moments Right. Uh, you know, one minute we're on Zoom, the next minute we're eating lunch. Uh, mm-hmm. Later this afternoon, we're teaching a class, so on and so on. And we we're very limited, finite creatures. We do those things one at a time. Um, as much as we, we might like to skip ahead or rewind, we, we can't. <laughs> we're, we're bound in that way. Um, if when we're talking about God, though, he he does not he is not bound by time. Uh, he, he has no succession of moments why is that well he um he is not he there's no uh potential that he has to somehow reach as if as if he needs to fulfill himself uh the way that so many have talked about this is they've used that phrase pure act Mm -hmm. to say there's no passive potency in god to put this in layman's terms nothing has to be actualized in God so that he becomes more God one moment than he was, you know, the, the previous moment, all that to say, well, then when we talk about eternal generation, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think Matthew Levering, uh, mm-hmm. I think I'm using his words here at this point. He says, well, this is a perfect act, a mm-hmm. perfect generating perfect. <laughs> if, if we can put it in that, that, 
philosophical sense. I think the Nicene Creed says the same thing when it says of the Son, he is true God of true God. He's light of light. Uh, it's trying to protect uh, this eternal generation from any type of mutation, any type of change, any type of succession of moments. I, I mean, this is a, you know, a discussion for another time. I would also uh, say it's, it's not just immutable, but impassable. Mm-hmm. And I know that the impassibility has fallen on hard times as well. Uh, I think we need to resurrect the uh, notion of impassibility to say uh, it's not as if when the sun is generated, he changes or even he changes emotionally in some. No, we, we those are human experiences right. that we want to um what we, we cannot apply those to the limitless, boundless, immeasurable, infinite, uh, eternal sun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this notion of an, of immutability though, um, maybe, maybe we can start, you know, driving our discussion home in this way. It, Sometimes it's the way that this is articulated is to say, well, the sun's generation is not transitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's imminent. What what is that typically meant, and what why have theologians used that type of language? Yeah, you know, we um, the, there's a set, series of terms, and we could either talk about ontology and economy, or we could talk about it in terms of. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know the the being of God versus you know the works of God, or, or another way that we've used these terms is the opera ad intra, the internal work of the Trinity, versus the opera ad extra, the external works of the Trinity. Again, ontology and economy. And when we're talking about eternal generation, it's always so important for us to recognize that we're talking about the opera at intra, the mm-hmm. internal work of the triune God, which we've talked about in terms of uh, the, the father begetting or the son being begotten and then the, the spirit uh, proceeding or being spirated from father and son. That's the internal work. Now, the reason that we, the church has historically said that these are not transitive acts is because, say, for example, the Arians in the early Christological controversies had said that, okay, you have uh, God here, the Father, and then there's this son out here uh, in the economy, and the, the Father sees him, likes him, and so therefore gives him all of these divine attributes or gives him this kind of divinity, and it goes out of the Godhead to this creaturely son to make the creature uh, in some sense, God. And so this is where you get these debates over homoousios of like substance with the Father versus homoousios of the same substance with the Father. And the way that the church fathers said is, no, 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 none of this is going out into yeah. the economy. <laughs> this is all staying here in the Godhead because right. it's 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 nat- natural to the Godhead or native to the Godhead. It's not yeah. something that is in any way external. And so again, it it preserves the divinity and the full equality of each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. Right. So crucial, isn't it? I mean, that, that, uh, well, is, uh, who was it? I I think it was, uh, John Gill, Mm -hmm. uh, who said, you, you have to, when we're talking about eternal generation, you, you, you got to get out of your mind anything carnal, uh, <laughs> anything that would, you know, in this case, you know, make eternal generation transitive. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what would you say, you know, kind of one of our last questions here, what would you say, are the, what implications does uh, eternal generation have for adoption? Yeah, you know, this is important, right? Because uh, maybe you've had this experience where you're teaching on this doctrine and there's always a hand that goes up and and people are like, you know, so what? Why why have this technical discussion? And yeah. well, you usually my first response is, uh well, first of all, uh let's let's not be pragmatic. Um, the pragmatism tends to, you know, rule the day. Let's not let that into our, yeah. our theology discussions. Um, 
contemplating God for the sake of contemplating God and knowing him is uh, not just a, a worthy endeavor, but um, the highest, uh, yeah. the highest endeavor. We, we've seen, we sometimes lose that perspective, but you know, that qualification aside, um, there is a real sense in which this doctrine of eternal generation, actually, this is quite foundational then for a healthy, biblical, uh, robust understanding of the gospel mm-hmm. and what Jesus does, but then also how the Holy Spirit then applies all the, the benefits Mm-hmm. of what Christ has purchased for us uh, to his to His bride, to his church. And one of those benefits, I mean, we could talk about so many, but one of those benefits is adoption. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Paul, for example, in Galatians 4, um, he has something to say about adoption uh, when, when he says, you know, this is a very pivotal point. In his epistle, I've got my Bible right here, so I'm just going to read it. When he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, um, God sent forth his son, born of of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then he, and this is, this is the, the, the crucial part. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And, um, of course, this isn't just Galatians 4, right? I mean, you could go over to uh, the book of Romans, where Paul will use uh, very, very similar similar language. Uh, later in um, Galatians 4, Paul will go on to say, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Mm-hmm. I think one the, the point I want to make is, on the one hand, we need to be careful. We need to recognize uh, the, the son of God is not a son in the same way we are a son. Uh, he is not adopted. <laughs> we, gotta, we have to make that very clear at the beginning. He is a son by nature. We are sons by grace. Mm-hmm. And I can't emphasize that enough. Um, that point made um, because he is not uh, just, you know, an adopted son like us. We want to reject the, you know, heresy of adoptionism, but because that's not the case, because he is begotten from his father from all eternity. Well, that then, uh, that then is a huge reason why he then can come and secure our adoption by grace. Uh, So otherwise, we're still left in this terrible situation in which we are still enemies outside the family of God. Uh, So this is one of those moments that I don't know if Christians always recognize this, but when you are brought into the family of God in Christ, there's that language of union with Christ, when you're brought into the family of God, uh, that is only possible because uh, your adoption is grounded on, well, goodness, uh, a son who is begotten from the Father from all eternity and is a son by nature. Uh, that that then substantiates why you then uh, can be brought into the family of God by grace. Yeah, that's uh, so true. So true. How would yeah, you describe it, uh, John? When 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 you kind of flesh out that connection. Yeah. I, you know, I say that if, um, in, I guess in the, I, I always, you know, often resort to history. If we, um, if we go the trend of say the 19th and early 20th century, there was such an effort to eminentize the triune God. Yeah. Uh, I guess in some sense to make the triune God more relatable, uh, or to make him more like us. Yeah. And while I understand that, uh, on the one hand, you know, we, we there's a sense in which we want to know who God is. Okay, I get that. But on the other hand, there's also that that disturbing trend throughout the scriptures where they are always trying to make God, you know, we're always trying to make God like us, whether it's making statues, um, you know, or what have you, and idols. And so I say, but what eternal, the eternal generation of the Son does, among other truths of the Trinity, 
uh, is that it preserves the utter transcendence of God and it highlights how unlike God is like us. You know, in other words, that line from Paul in Acts 17 that God uh, does not dwell in temples made by human hands and essentially doesn't need anything from us. And if we get his transcendence right, then that highlights and it magnifies the significance of the son's condescension where he becomes eminent in the incarnation. And I always remind my students of this to say that, remember, natures don't redeem, persons redeem. So it's not the human nature redeeming us. It's the second person of the Trinity who has a human nature that redeems. It's the God-man who redeems. And so when you think of the utter transcendence of God becoming a human being and becoming incarnate, it highlights, wow, I cannot believe the utter depths to which the Son of God has condescended to redeem sinners like us. Mm. You know, oh, you know, the uh, oh, oh, what wonderful love of God is this, that we should become children of God, and, and so we are. You know, so, um, and then, you know, just to say that, and then amen to all of the truths that you just said. You know, so it's just so important to say that impassibility, immutability, the eternal generation of the Son, these are not uh, Greek ideas foisted upon the scriptures, but rather this is the, you know, the, the warp and woof of the, the scriptural doctrine of God. And in and, and anything less than this, we run the risk of eminentizing God and, and falling into some sort of pantheism. Yeah. Uh, and that is, of course, just, uh, you know, that would that's disastrous and we don't want to do that. Amen. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that I can say it uh, any better than, than you just did, John. Uh, let's let's not try to uh, put God in a box and, and uh, historize <laughs> uh, the eternal the eternal God. Absolutely. Um, hey, this has been uh, so enjoyable. Yeah, likewise. Um, I I appreciate you uh, in so many ways, and uh, it's it's you know with with COVID and everything, it's been difficult. Uh, theologians just don't get together as much, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, this has been just a, a good uh, time to get together again and, and be able to talk theology, which is yeah. uh, what we love to do most. <laughs> no, for sure. Absolutely. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for asking me to have this conversation with you. And I hope that the folks that watch it uh, are edified and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get to have others like it. Absolutely. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.